Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. Good morning. Oh, I love that. That was great. <laughs> it's nice to have a warm welcome and to see your smiling faces and your present bodies here today. Everybody on live stream, welcome to you as, as well today. And uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment to pray, and that's going to feel all the more critical and clear even as we work through our passage this morning. Dear God, thanks for speaking when you could remain silent in the shadows, you chose to reveal yourself. Not because we're worth it in many ways, but because you know our greatest joy is found in you and you love us that much, that you reveal who you are for us. So God, today may you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. If we're coming in a bit groggy with the weather, or relaxed, may you give us an attentive spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit who's here within us and among us, who uniquely works through your word and your word preached. So guide us now. We anticipate your reign in this place, in our lives, personally and collectively. It is in Jesus' name we pray, and by the power of the Spirit and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Well, there's one resource uh, that is absolutely essential to our growth, and yet, simultaneously, it's one of the first things we drop when we start to have a shaky faith. It's prayer. <laughs> um, there are a lot of reasons for that. Maybe you've been, you know, had, had these fits and starts with prayer. You, you say you're going to, you know, I'm going to engage in prayer on a daily basis and then something happens, breaks the habit and then something triggers you again to be like, oh, I got to get back into prayer. Some of you, you've been praying for years about this one thing and you feel like God hasn't answered it the way you anticipated. And so you don't know what you believe about prayer or what you believe about God and the one who works through prayer. Some of you, you know, have told yourself, you know what, I'm going to really get into prayer and I'm going to do it every night. And then you binge watch a show and then you make your way <laughs> groggily to bed and you say I'll do it tomorrow morning but then since you went to bed really late you couldn't get up in the morning and then you say I'm going to do it tonight when you wake up after you get yourself you know hurried out the door and then when you come to church I feel like a dentist reminding you to floss right 
and I talk about prayer. And you're like, when's the last time you flossed? You did it, Dr. Dentist. Uh, <laughs> so, and here we are, right? But here's, <laughs> in the midst of this, here's the good news, okay? In, in many ways, prayer is a discipline, but actually here's the, I don't think you, that we have a problem with prayer. You know, I had a, um, when I was a butler for a bit while I was in seminary, I worked for this gentleman named Mr. Prutz, and then sometimes he would be up really late, and I'd hear him rubbinging around and stuff, and I'm like, Mr. Prutz, what were you doing? And he goes, ah, Gabriel. He's a British gentleman. I'm not going to try to do it right now, but <laughs> uh, he would say, the great work is figuring out what the great problem is. You know, what is the actual problem? If you get the problem wrong, you know, the solution is useless. <laughs> and, and I would go on to venture to say that we actually don't have as much a problem with prayer. I mean, I, I talk to most people, and most people understand that prayer in many ways is conversation with God. And most people understand that, you know, you can talk and, and God will hear us even if we're in the midst of a, a dire situation. That's why we all do it when we're in the midst of dire situation, because we believe in some way, shape, or form just how to talk with God. I instead believe more and more that we don't have a prayer problem. Instead, we have an authority problem. Um, now, authority is having the position, the power, maybe the control to make something happen. And one of the problems with our authority problem is that you and I think we have way more authority than we actually do. <laughs> we think we can make the things we want to happen happen. And so we tell ourselves, if I can just define what I think is good enough and work hard enough and then therefore work long enough, I can make what I want happen to happen, and then that will be good. It's the idea of self-determination. The only thing between me and my destiny is me, right? And so we work really hard at making the things that we think are good come to be. Many, many philosophers, when they look at Western culture, have described what has become a pinnacle or a, a central frame or idea for our Western culture. It's not actually common in the rest of the world or throughout the rest of history, but especially in the Western world, and one might even say especially in the United States, and it's the idea of the sovereign self. The idea that, oh, you know what? I get to define what's good for me, and if I get to define what's good for me, and if I just make up my mind to do it, I can pull myself up, I can work hard, and I can make my destiny a reality. No one else can tell me what to do with me. It's the idea that I'm sovereign. I'm over all that is in my life. So what would we expect when we start to see? Beliefs have repercussions in cultures and society, okay? So what, what would we expect in, in a culture or society where that's a dominant belief or understanding of the world? We would expect to see higher than usual rates of anxiety, because everything comes down to you, everything. If you are ultimately in control and everything comes down to you, then every one of your decisions is life or death because it's going to set you down a trajectory, down a path that you can't take back and it's only person's fault is yours. Extraordinary anxiety. <laughs> Secondly, we would find a lot more escapism, whether you find it in addictions of all sorts, whether it be narcotics, whether it be alcohol, whether it be work, okay, whether it be social media, we have a heightened busyness, 
a way of distracting ourselves from the weight and the, the heaviness of our decisions that we need to make. And then what you would find then is a lack of silence, less prayer, and less wholeness. When you look at our society, you just start doing check boxes, right? <laughs> it's very uh, much fits the, the gamut there of those dynamics. Now, then you come to this brilliant prayer from a gentleman by the name of Paul. And you find a guy who's in prison at this point writing this or having a scribe write it for him as he's dictating it and collaborating more than likely with the scribe to make sure that it comes across well on a piece of paper, right? Um, but what we find is not someone driven by anxiety, although he's imprisoned. He actually has a deep understanding of his lack of control of a lot, and yet he's still leveraging the agency he does have. And his prayer, frankly, <laughs> is very different than most of the prayers we pray for. Um, and it's not because the Apostle Paul has a stronger belief in prayer per se. It's more that he has a deep conviction as to who has authority over the world. You know, there, there, is, there is no other name that can compel you to pray like this. Now, if you're new, you picked a really good Sunday to join us <laughs> because we are walking through a brilliant letter written to the church in Ephesus. It's the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Often we just call it Ephesians. Many ways that if I were to write a letter to this campus today, it could be called the Kansas Cityans, which is weird, but there it is. We often just call it Ephesians, but it's a letter to a group of people from a particular place in a particular time. And it's a circular letter written to these smaller churches across what is now considered Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. And while we're walking through this letter, we're also seeking to do a good job, not only studying the text, but studying the context of our lives. And, and, and so many in this room and maybe within your friend group or family group have used the term deconstruction or we're in a season of deconstruction. We're seeking to figure out where I really line up with the beliefs I've been handed or I've seen or interpreted through my church experiences here and there. And listen, there's some health to that, but last week we walked through the dynamics of construction, deconstruction, and how you can't stay there, but eventually we move to, in a healthy process, reconstruction. And that's why we're seeking to reconstruct faith anchored in God's Word because God actually has something to say about your life. And as we saw last week, you and I, when it comes to the Christian life, we don't get to define the Christian life. God does. <laughs> And so we want to see what God has said through apostles and prophets across the pages of Scripture to have a robust understanding of what it looks like to walk with Him. He's invited us into His story. We're not waiting for Him to fit ours. And that's really important. And that kind of sets the table for our conversation today around authority as to who has ultimate authority in God's story. And so... If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps to this letter of Paul to the Ephesians, and we're going to be looking beginning in verse 15. Now, give you a little bit of context here. We are stepping in. Verses 15 to 23 are all one big sentence in the Greek. I said this last week, you know, verses 3 through 14 were all one big sentence. So if you want, if it makes you feel any better, we are taking this book, at least for the first three weeks, sentence by sentence, okay? Okay. Um, we are really anchoring ourselves 
here and walking through. And the Apostle Paul, he begins in verse 15 with an important um, grammatical construction that connects you to what came before. For this reason. What reason? Well, what came before? He's saying all of what I've said before. He actually begins to go into what is really common in New Testament or in, in broader context letters, these thanksgivings. He's, he's saying, I'm really thankful for who you are, and I'm, and I'm thankful for what God's doing in your life. That's really cr- common across the New Testament. Now, it's uncommon where he places it because, as we said last week, verses 3 through 14 are utterly rare. It's very Hebraic. It makes you feel like a psalm, like you've stepped into worship, but he starts with God in a way that is uncommon in the broader literary context in the first century. But now he says, because of all of what God has done in Christ and and the fact that you are in Christ, remember that, that beauty that we are enveloped, somehow invited into God because of what God has done for us in Christ, and we are invited into the story for this reason and because I've heard about your faith in Christ. Because I've heard about your love, because I've heard about the kind of community you are, that God is indeed writing and carrying out his story in you, I thank God for you, which I just find so fascinating that he starts there. And then he moves on into this, into this prayer, and <laughs> here's the thing that I love about faithful fathers of Jesus throughout history. He kind of gives us aspects here that he has no control over. Thoughtful followers of Jesus throughout history have a deep framework that they are less in control than their surrounding world often tells them they are. There's a deep humility about this and what the Apostle Paul says here. So three things, because I love threes and it helps give us some mental organization as we're walking through this, that he says we don't have control over, but he prays that God brings about. And actually, all of them are connected to knowledge, okay, which is interesting, but it's not maybe what you think. All right, let's look together again at the text, verses 17 through 19. This is what he prays. He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts or your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So he's praying that they would know quite a bit of things, that they would have wisdom, that things would be revealed to them. Now, Something important about knowledge in the Hebraic world versus how we think about knowledge today. We can often think that knowledge is a list of facts that has a limited number, and then once we grasp all of those facts and we can take a quiz, then we have passed the knowledge test. That is not the way knowledge works across the Hebrew Scriptures. To know something is to do it, to live in light of it. If you don't do it, then you don't know it. If you say, I know Jesus, but your life looks every bit like the world and you want nothing to do with actually following his way, then you don't know Jesus. There's a knowledge that actually shows up in the way that we organize our life. It has a framework of belief, understanding, and shaping the very framework of our steps, of our daily life. So, Let's look at these three things, okay, that we don't have authority over that he's praying for. Well, one, we don't have authority over what God reveals to us about himself. 
Verses 17 and 18 make that pretty clear. God has more of who he is that he wants to reveal. There's a clear distinction when we approach the divine from the biblical framework versus the way that other religions will approach the divine and their framework of of God. It's the difference between revelation and domination, okay? So what God will do is he will reveal who he is at his pace for our good. In other religions, you gain information about the gods in order to dominate them. You find out their weaknesses. You think about the old Roman gods. They were just like human beings with unruly passions, but you figured out where their weak spots were and you sought to go to the priests or priestesses and you would go and you'd say, hey, how do I get this God to get to do this one thing for me? It was about manipulation and domination. Not with God. Not with the God of Scripture. He reveals himself not to give us levers to manipulate him towards our will, but he reveals himself that he might woo us more to who he is and that we might find life and life abundant. We've been invited to know him at his pace. And that's, listen, friends, I've been doing a deeper dive into kind of what are often called the Christian mystics throughout history. These people who have a deep intimacy with God's presence, that yes, they understand he's high and lifted up, but also that Jesus longs for this oneness, this in Christ life. And one thing I deeply appreciate about the mystics, they come back to again and again and again, is even our best thoughts or even our best conceptions about our best thoughts can never fully grasp and capture the grandeur of who God is. That's how big he is. That's how beautiful he is. That's how wonderful he is. It's even your best thought is just scratching at the surface. And even that might be a little bit of hubris. (laughs) Because he's that rich. He's that wonderful. He's that good. Such that when you get to prayer, and you see this all across the scriptures, when it actually comes to praying to this God, you can't help but land in poetic language. You start using imagery rather than just straight up you know, movement of proposition because you're thinking like, how do I capture the beauty, the wonder, and even my engagement with this God? I mean, you see this in verse 18, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. That's poetry. Everybody, I mean, I think most in here, you know, know physical anatomy enough to know that your heart doesn't have eyes, right? This is a way of saying that the core of who you are is being opened up to see the brilliance of who God is, and it actually lightens up your world and the depths of your soul. That's what he wants to reveal in ways that we're barely able to grasp. That's why he's called the father of glory. Glory, wonder, beauty, awe. You know, sometimes this word glory can feel so far out of reach, but the idea is that the magnificence of who God is, the beauty and the the wonder of who he is, is just flooding you like a sunrise after a dark night. It's his, he's the one of beauty and awe. And he longs to reveal that for our delight and more of his glory. Because when we light up because we see his light, his glory expands. Because we become more beautiful when we see the beauty of who God is. Do you see how this becomes reciprocal and how this is really good for us? He wants to reveal that to us, not that we might dominate him, but instead stand in wonder and awe of who he is. And that's, in many ways, sometimes the dangers of deconstruction 
or when you go towards deconstruction and you start to wrestle with these ideas, we can begin to quickly fool ourselves into thinking that we control what God gets to reveal to us. That we feel like we're in the driver's seat way more than we actually are. You see, yeah, there's a space for even deconstructing, deconstructing or, 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 or teasing out like, wait a second, maybe my mental models, maybe the way I've come, again, uh, come to understand God actually doesn't line up well enough with Scripture. But the beauty and the movement, the more you go towards the healthy rhythms of landing eventually into reconstruction, is that you find that you don't have to explain away God to others. Or you don't have to explain away certain parts of who God is that don't naturally fit within our cultural frame. You just stand in wonder and say, that's who he is? <laughs> I don't know if I can explain everything here. This may not sit well with everyone, but here's what I know. He's glorious and he's good. And I don't know, you don't always have to come with all the answers. You don't have to be in control of what other people perceive God to be. But you can sit in wonder and say, not my job to explain away and be okay with that. That doesn't mean we don't have good thought. We don't have faith that seeks understanding. Of course, of course. But you don't own the responsibility as somehow you have to dominate or control God for others and their experience of God. Because the reality is, is he won't fit any of our perfect paths we have for him. He invites us to fit his. And it's absolutely beautiful, wonderful, but it requires so much humility and allowing God to be in the driver's seat. So we don't have authority over what God reveals to us about himself, but then secondly, as we move through this, we see that we don't have control over the confidence that God is doing something in us. <laughs> confidence, oh man. There's a difference between being told that something great is happening and actually believing something great is happening, right? There's a difference between telling someone, hey, on this date, it's going to be really phenomenal. And then they begin to see the, re it's the difference between telling kids Christmas is coming. And then after Thanksgiving, they start to see presents under a tree and they go, oh, <laughs> right. They have started to have a new confidence. There's a feeling that goes down deep in our bones. You see, in ancient culture and really every culture, there was a deep anxiety over the world. That's why you see all of these sacrifices and all of this seeking to manipulate others and to manipulate the gods because if you're ultimately in control, if you have the ability to control the very destiny in which you find yourselves, then you will be consumed with anxiety. Why? Because you know you. You know you don't see it all. And we could try to lie to ourselves and feel like, you know what, I know what's good for me. But your body doesn't believe that. No, I'm, I'm just being real. Your body keeps score of all of this type of stuff. You can tell yourself to your blue in the face, looking in the mirror, I know it's good for me, and I'm going to choose this. And be careful, because your body's like, why am I so jittery? You know, like there's an element there where your body really does. And I'm not trying to talk about clinical anxiety. There's dynamics there, and I want to name that, because I don't want to do to walk out of here with an oversense of guilt of what I'm not talking about. Okay, there's healthy psychology and dynamics there, of course. But there is an element where if we think that we're in the driver's seat, that we're the ultimate authority in our lives, that we have control and therefore are trying to even control what God is doing or what others are doing and trying to constantly regulate other people around us, anxiety will show up. Anxiety, by its very nature, is the worry over the future. 
It's, it, it's the, what if that doesn't pan out? What if that's not the best decision for where my life is going? And what does Paul pray for here? He prays for hope. Hope is also very future. <laughs> it's the antithetical nature to anxiety. Hope is something great is coming, and I'm excited about it. It's not just an idea that I hope that works out. It's not a wish dream. It's a confidence that indeed something extraordinary is coming. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you know the hope you have. That you have a great confidence. I'm praying because you can't control that. That's got to be something the Spirit of God does in you. And once again, the, the beauties of deconstruction, when you're coming with Scripture and you're seeking to uncouple it from, from maybe cultural corruption from a particular subculture, when you, when you do that, you actually begin to dismantle unfirm hopes. And you say, wait a second, I was hoping there was one subculture of Christian culture that said, if I just get married, I'll finally fully know God. And you're like, wait a second, that's not what Paul says. He's saying, I wish you were all like me, single. What? And you start to dismantle these false hopes that start to be embodied in certain cultural frameworks of Christianity. And you go back to Scripture and you say, wait a second, that's not where my hope is. My hope's in Jesus, no matter my marital status. But you can't stay there. <laughs> Deconstruction allows you to dismantle unhelpful or untrue frameworks for hope, but it won't leave you when it's with scripture. It won't leave you in despair. Reconstruction actually guides you and actually says, okay, now I've got what is the sure hope. And then you come with the centurion's prayer. We say, I believe, but help my unbelief. I can't, I can't cultivate this confidence within myself. God, you got to do this within me. And that's a crucial pathway to move from anxiety to hope. <laughs> what does he say when he says, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you? What does he say? It's this. And this, listen, you can misread this because quickly we can look at the text as Abraham Heschel, the great rabbi of the 20th century says, we can often see what we know rather than know what we see. We can start to bring our own interpretation. What does the apostle Paul says? He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? <laughs> That's not our inheritance that's yet to come. It's the fact that God looks at you and me and he says, you're my inheritance. You're that valuable. You are my glory. You're the one I've been going for. Once you get that God treasures you that much, you start to go, oh, he's, he, he's, he's victorious and he's got this future and he treasures me. Then it begins to cultivate. He's like, I want you to know this down in your bones that God wants you, and he sees you as his treasure. And that only happens by the Spirit. You can't will this. You don't have the authority over the mechanisms of your heart. God has to do it, and that's why Paul is praying that it happens. <laughs> He's praying that they would have this deep confidence because of God working. And then number three we don't have authority over experiencing God's power at work for us, at work for us. You don't get to control God's power. And I know in, in this room, no one in here is just looking for information. Nobody. They're just like, oh, that's fascinating. I'll go about my day. No, everybody in here, everyone, the reason you, you, you're drawn to who God is, the, the reason we have these deep aches and these longings to know is because we want transformation. 
We want to know love more deeply. We want to be someone of integrity more fully. We want to come with honesty. We want to come and actually have deeper joy. We want God to do that in us. We can't will that. We want transformation. And that's only possible by God's work. And Paul knew this. He knew that he couldn't just teach, and he's going to walk us through throughout the letter of Ephesians. He's going to teach us something, but he understands that he can never teach enough to actually make that happen in you or me or the original hearers. He can't force this. He can't explain it into being. It has to be God. That's why he prays. It's not a nice little formulaic kind of framing to say, you know what, this is a good way to explain this. I'll put it in a prayer format. No. It's because he genuinely believes it has to be God who does it. And I know it's already, we, we already started down a road where we recognize that prayer is tough. <laughs> but when's the last time you've prayed this prayer? God, you've got to reveal more of you. Because I, I, I'm going to go to the text and I'm not going to be able to squeeze that out by myself. When's the last time you went to Scripture and you went in prayer and you said, God, you've got to be the one who builds confidence in me that you're going to do this. I, I'm, I'm, I, can't, I can't keep convincing myself. <laughs> I need you. Yeah, that's, what I say. that's it. And at the heart of it, that's what, that's what the Apostle Paul, but he's teasing that out so that when we say, I need you, it's not, I need you to do my thing. It's instead, I need you to reveal you, and I need you to reveal and give me a deeper confidence that what you want to be done will be done, and I need you to work your power toward me. This is so important, friends, because this is another area. I was, man, I was messed up by this text in a really good way this week because he doesn't say, and this is really important. He doesn't say the power in you. He says, and the, the preposition is different. It's toward you. <laughs> this is God's power at you. That doesn't mean like I've been able to conjure this up. If I just, you know, pray enough, it'll bubble out of me. No, this is moving at you. That means you are not the agent of this. God is the agent and it's working at you, towards you. We need him to work toward us. Because <laughs> we've all tried to conjure up something within us. And that might be another reason why we're here. And listen, my goal in the midst of this isn't to shame anyone. Like, man, my prayers don't look like that. Thanks, Pastor Gabe. Um, but we do need to, even in the midst of that, we need to take note of how those who are intimately walking with Jesus are praying and say, how can I be doing that too? We need to follow someone who knew Jesus, frankly, better than we do. And he's seeking to train us, not just give us information, but in the very way he's doing what he's doing, he's inviting us to walk with him. A, a thoughtful Pharisee who understands Rabbi, I mean, this is Rabbi Paul pointing us to Rabbi Jesus, okay? Walk with me. Learn how to pray from me. And at the heart of all of this is prayer that we might know in an intimate, whole life reality way. It's motivated by what comes next. You see, he, he doesn't begin to, to pray this way because of his convictions around prayer per se, but because of his framework of authority. 
He, he wants us to know that this is the reason why he prays that we might be revealed more of God. This is the reason why that we can have a deeper hope and understanding that we are treasured by God. This is the reason why he can have confidence that God will work toward us. And it all comes down to this. Look with me now at the passage in verses 19, like the second half of 19 into the beginning of 22. We read, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. The reason Paul prays the way he prays and the reason he reaches out is because he has a deep conviction and understanding that Jesus has all authority now. Not someday in the future, not eventually, but now. I mean, look at the text. There's present tense going on there in those verbs and those realities. And how did he do this? Let's just walk through the beauty of this because once again, if we can grasp this, I think it has a massive impact on our prayer lives and therefore a massive impact on what we even expect God to do in our lives now. The first thing to note is that Jesus won and how he won. He won by dying. This is the central ethic for the Christian then and today that we don't use the world's pathways to bring about God's ends. This is why the spiritual forces of evil never saw this coming. This is why the angels said, or the, the P, Peter writes later, that the angels were waiting that they might have the gospel revealed to them, that they might be able to look in on what God was, because nobody other than in the insight and the wisdom of God could they have imagined that when God came, he would actually bring victory, not by decimating his enemies physically, instead actually decimating himself and therefore saving his enemies. Christ died for us when I was still a sinner. When I was his enemy, that's how Jesus wins. That's how God wins. That's how God works. Not through domination, not through bullying, not through brutality, but through death. And, that's the, and the reason he can do that is because he holds life. And so he defeats death. And when he comes out of the grave, his victory was sure. He dealt the decisive blow to death in his own death. And when he came out of the grave, he showed that he was indeed the son of God and that he has the authority over life itself. And then he moves on. The apostle Paul says, and not only was he raised, but he was seated in the highest place in the heavens. Now, when we come to this, we need to understand we're stepping into a different mental model of cosmology or the heavens or the universe, okay? And that's not to say that um, we shouldn't trust this, but God works with the mental models we have. Praise God he does. Otherwise, if he was always exclusively working with the perfect absolute model, there are many times we wouldn't be able to understand. So he condescends and he steps into our mental models that we might understand him where we are. And that's what he's doing here. The ancient cosmology and the understanding was not like how we have our modern cosmology. And frankly, it might be more accurate. <laughs> Where in our modern culture, we separate the physical from any sort of idea of something spiritual. We've divorced the two. 
In ancient cosmology, instead, they were much more intertwined, the spiritual and the physical, such that there were actually seven layers of heaven, much like a wedding cake. If you have a good one, that's got all these different layers. So in the midst of that, what the Apostle Paul is saying when he's writing this is he goes, who's at the highest level? And, and it was understood that God and his people were in the highest level. So here we have Jesus at the highest level of heaven. Now, what we also need to note here is that cosmology and even the way today we talk about the world, the universe, and its structure, it has more to do with values than it does pure geography. I'm not saying that's unimportant, but it has much more to do with values and a preconceived notion on how the world works. Now, I don't know if you had a chance or not, but I had the wonderful privilege of being here for Cesar Lopez's uh, artist talk for Northward, and he just did an exceptional job. He was a brilliant artist, and his main work is looking at the globe and how we look at um, different lines on the globe and how we do measuring and create maps and all these different dynamics and how... Actually, most of the time when you create a map of a globe and you flatten it out, there are distortions. You have to because it's one geographic shape now to a flat 2D kind of shape, right? 3D to 2D, you're going to get some distortions. And in the midst of that, how you make sense of that is you're interpreting it through your values because you can't help make distortions. Like, for example, when you have a map, you often have it north up. Why? When you have a map, you have it north up. Why is that? Well, couldn't you do south up? What's there something? Why is it so special that north needs to be up? Well, but here's the question. (laughs) Why do you even think that? Like, why are you thinking that north needs to be the way in which we view the world? I was always told north goes straight up. There you go. But north doesn't go up. Oh, well then. North is actually that way. But see, this is it. It's so deeply ingrained. It's like, well, of course it's north. Why? This is the, the ingr- Why don't you have a, like a, a south up map? Because we're capturing values. And often, those in the northern hemisphere are the ones who are creating the maps. So we get to be on top. Right. <laughs> now, and this is, can, can get pretty ornery. But, I mean, even when you look at this right up here, this may feel really foreign or weird because we are used to the United States on the left. As Westerners, we read left to right. So that puts us in the upper left-hand corner. We see us first. But in here, you have a Pacific-centric map. Why not? (laughs) Where you're looking at Africa and Asia first. Once again, there's not right or wrong. There's just a communication of values here. And we have to be aware of the values. Here's another example, Africa. (laughs) Okay, here we go. So Africa is pictured way smaller. This is a map, actually, that captures true geography a little bit more to the size. Now, you'll notice that the shape is distorted, so they chose one value over another. Size may be over trueness of shape. The actual size of Africa can encapsulate um, China, India, con- the most of contiguous U.S. Uh, United States, and most of Europe combined. That's how large Africa is. But this is the map we usually have. Let's go to the next one. (laughs) Now, what it does is it makes it look the same size as Greenland, okay? But Africa is 14 times the size of Greenland. Once again, you're capturing values here and how you are laying out the framework in which you see 
the world. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but you need to understand the values that are impacting the way that that map is being created. Now, why go through this long journey? One, I hope we're really better at maps going forward as the people of God. (laughs) I feel like that's a common good win for us so we can show up smarter tomorrow in our workspaces. That's really, really good. Uh, But more than that, we need to understand how our mental models of how we see the world are encapsulated by our values. And the Apostle Paul is coming with very specific values. This is why, and I'm just going to also say this, we love artists around here because, frankly, that was unpacked for me by an artist who's seeking to create and better understand his world and then invite us, hey, are you thinking well about why the world is presented the way that it is presented? This is why we love the four-chapter gallery and we started it, that we might be better and more thoughtful as Christians and be informed by our artist sisters and brothers who are seeking to follow Jesus to see the world better. Okay, let's get off the soapbox a little bit, Gabe, but that's crucial to why we are deeply engaged because it actually makes us better Christians. And when you come to the Apostle Paul, his mental map, when you look at the seven layers of heaven that was a common framework in the first century, who's at the top? Jesus. When you look at the world and you think of all the different powers and dynamics, Jesus is at the tippy, tippy top. And you need to understand, too, you look across the Old Testament, there's a fascinating phrase, God most high. He is the God most high. All over the Old Testament, God most high. Who do you worship? I worship the God most high. They too had this framework that God was on the height of the heavens. And Paul, a Jewish convert to the Messiah, Jesus, now sees Jesus occupying the place of God. Now, if you want to know what early Christians think, you just got to study a little bit. And everybody across the New Testament, these early followers, there was no question Jesus was God. And how they're structuring it and laying it out. And what does he say? Let's just tease this out a little bit more. Far above. What? Every. Why don't we say it with me if you're looking in your Bibles. Every. Oh, come on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite us out. Let's do it. Okay. Every what? Rule. Authority. Power. Dominion. Look at that. You guys are great. Way to look in your Bibles. I love it. Oh, that was just for me. Okay. But thank you. Yes, over every, I mean, and the Apostle Paul's using these words, words very important, every earthly and spiritual power. We often think about the earthly ones. You think about the Roman emperors who thought they were gods. Emperor worship was common in the Roman world. They were indeed the ones who represented the gods, all this. And Paul's like, no, 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 Jesus is over them. You think they've got authority? Jesus is over them. And then all the spiritual forces. There was the Artemis cult, the occult, where they would use these spells and the dynamics. Fears that your neighbor might cast a spell if they went to the right person that would control or destroy your life. And the Apostle Paul says, over them. You got to understand the domination of fear in the midst of the spiritual world. Because if you could control the gods, then so could your neighbor if you hurt them. And then they could maybe control the gods to hurt you. You're vulnerable, anxious, and in control all at the same time. For us, we just like to, you know, skim through our feeds. That's our way of controlling things. Um, But here's the deal. (laughs) Above every earthly or spiritual and then every name. This is a fascinating, like we we use this and we sang it today. This is such a rich song. Uh, Thank you so much, Sean, for introducing that and team to us. But every name that's above every, this is the, a lot of times in the occult, you would call on the name of a god. 
And you, if, you could, if you could name them, you could control them. But there's one name that's over every name, and he can't be exploited. He's seated on the throne. And yes, we get to pray in his name. If you look across the book of Acts, what is it? In the name of Jesus, and then something happens, right? There's something beautiful about his name that comes with his authority. But it's not abused. It's not exploited. But there is power in the name of Jesus. Everything, then you see, he ends with everything. Not something. Everything is under his feet. He stands tall over it all. And I know some folks will, yeah, someday. Someday he'll be victorious. No, no, no. Once again, look at the text. What does Paul write? He's saying Jesus is there now. Now. Now there is an element where his death and his resurrection actually did it landed the decisive blow, and the fullness of that victory is being carried out. And one day, he will come back and fully finish what he has already accomplished. Yes, yes, yes. And others may be in here and be like, Gabe, this is so far-fetched. This is so otherworldly. I, it's really hard for me to, to actually, I mean, it must have been so much easier for them. No, it wouldn't. For the Apostle Paul, that's why he's writing this, because they're, tr- they're having trouble believing. When you're walking around your town and you see idols to all these other gods and you see other people getting promotions or getting certain jobs because they're connected with those gods and they see all these other dynamics where you're losing jobs because you're considered an atheist because you won't worship the gods of Rome, you got to believe at that moment they're like, is this even real? Right. They were wrestling just as much as you and me. You're not alone. But we need to understand, Jesus has all authority now. And more than that, he, is now, he has all authority now and forever. Not only above every name that has been named but ever, in this age, but in the age to come. There is no moment where he will no longer be on his throne. Think about that. No moment where he will no longer be on his throne. And that means today... No matter who's voted into any particular office, that means today, no matter the dynamics going on in your home, today, no matter what issues are passed or furthered by your homeowners association, today, no no matter whatever addiction you feel like has a stronghold on you, no matter what the doctor has prescribed over you, that doesn't have to be the final word because you know who has the ultimate authority over it all, not some of it, over it all. And his name is Jesus. But here's the deal. That's actually not where he lands. (laughs) That's not the final point here. It actually goes further. And some of you are like, Gabe, wrap it up. Now, here's the deal. Look at me at verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Don't miss that. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Listen, friends, when we receive Jesus' authority over us, we get his life. That's what we get. But there's an element. He, as the one who's head over it all, at the very pinnacle of heaven, he's been given uniquely to the church to be over us. Not someone we get to coach into bringing our best life now, but someone who's saying, follow me, and you can know life now and forever. And that's why, in a very real sense, this is not our church. We talk about that sometimes, but it's not our church. This is Jesus' church. 
And if you want to see God at work, he's, he's working uniquely in his church because that's where he has a unique authority is over his church. And being an active member in the church becomes a place where you're deeply embedded in that body, which is the body of Christ. Now, I want to be very clear because some people look at this and instantly go to church universal. That means like all Christians everywhere throughout all of history and all of time. That's actually not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. It's actually a very rare interpretation to find that, where he's just talking about everybody everywhere throughout history who've trusted Jesus. That's not this. What the Apostle Paul is talking about when he's writing this circular letter to all these little messy little home churches is he's talking about local church. That's where Jesus' authority reigns. And that's also why spiritual trauma is so intense and rocks us to our core because when Jesus' authority is bucked for the sake of certain cultural idols or personal domination, it becomes associated with his rule, which is never meant to support that. This is the place where his reign and his rule is meant to be uniquely carried out. It's been given to the local church. And so whatever good comes out of this place, it's because of his resurrection power. And notice what the Apostle Paul says here. He says it's toward, in verse 19, it's toward us. He doesn't say you. He includes himself in this. It's toward us. And he knows this firsthand. He had a construction that the Messiah could never be the one who was crucified. God could never do that to his own. And still, God worked toward him on the road to Damascus and knocked him off that horse and blinded him that he might finally see. That wasn't him, the Spirit of God working out through him. That was God working toward him. And the Apostle Paul is saying, God is working toward us. We're working against him, and he's working toward us to point us in the direction. And when he went about reconstruction, he had a deeper understanding of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrected Jesus and his intimacy of us being in Christ. Because when he approached the resurrected Jesus, what does Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my church, but me. We are intimately intertwined. And now understanding how the church itself is Christ's body carrying out his work and continuing his victorious work through his death-shaped life. That is where he came with a deeper conviction that drives his prayers to the one who is seated over all such that he's in prison talking about hope, glory, and power because <laughs> he knows the one who's at the pinnacle of heaven. He's figured out who has authority over it all. And listen, if we don't get this, the eyes of your heart will not be enlightened. That's why we got to pray that God would reveal. We won't pray. We'll ignore his presence and our faith will languish. So what do we do? We follow Paul's example. We do what Paul does with the agency he has. He prays. And so here's the deal. As we've been walking through this series and we continue to do, I'm going to ask a series of questions as we, be, as we go through this because I want you to be asking them of yourself. In your journey of reconstructing faith or deepening your faith, are you asking God to reveal more of who he is or are you trying to figure it out on your own? Paul knows he can't convince us to have confidence. Paul knows he can't teach us to have the right knowledge. Paul knows at the end of the day that he's not the one in control of what we get to learn and neither are you, but God has to work through prayer and by the power of his spirit. It's an unbelievable hum humbling space to be. And so when you go to read scripture, are you asking that God would reveal more of himself or are you looking for cracks? When you come on Sunday morning, are you anticipating God's presence to uniquely be at work to, this authority that's been given to the church to be working here for your good in your life? 
Are you coming with skepticism? And maybe that just feels too big. I, I was listening to a great talk uh, from Ryan Diaz. He's a poet out of Queens, New York. And I loved what he said prayer is, knowing kind of our cynical nature and skepticism. He said, prayer is a willful suspension of disbelief. <laughs> prayer is a willful suspension of disbelief. That's why you have this insurance saying, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's like, I got it in here, but I'm just going to put this down for a second and say, you've got to give me more. That's what this, what's a prayer is, asking God for more. And Paul knew that praying was the only way we were going to grow. So let me ask you, are you praying for others and their growth? You know, Bonhoeffer, brilliantly, and I think Paul models this here, says we ought to be talking to God about others more than we're talking to them about them. <laughs> Out of his life together. That's br- God, you got to do a work. You got to do work other than, hey, you got to change this. You got to change this. You got to. What if we actually believe that the spirit of, the God, spirit of God is the one that brought conviction and repentance, as he promised? Then we would be on our knees saying, God, do your work. And then he would also you know, smooth out our rough edges so that when we actually do talk to that person, we're ready to come with greater humility. Are you asking other? Are you praying for others and their growth, knowing what the Apostle Paul's praying for here? And are there others... Praying for you. If you go to Ephesians 5, 19 at the end, Paul doesn't just tell other people to do this. He says, pray for me. The apostle Paul says this, yeah? That's why we have prayer cards. This is like pre-announcements, right? We got prayer cards under there because we believe that as God's people, we ought to be praying for As a pastor, if you're a member of this church, if you've gone through the dinner and you've met with one of the pastors, I pray for each and every one of you every week. That's the, I don't say that other than to say, I, this is because I deeply believe what the Apostle Paul is modeling here. That it has to be God in your life. I can't control you. I can't manipulate you. That's not my job. It's got to be God doing it in you. And I got to surrender that. Otherwise, it gets real toxic real quick. So are you asking God to reveal more of who he is? Are you trying to figure it out on your own? Because Jesus is on his throne. He's over us. He's in us. We're in him, and he's working through us as his body in ways that only poetry can grasp it, and nothing can stop him. His victory sure. He's already at the top, <laughs> and simultaneously, the king is here. We sang about it. It's a both and. So ask for more, huh? And here's what we're going to do. Instead of just saying do that, we're going to actually do it. We're actually going to pray Paul's words um, together, and th- we have some slides there on the screen Um, I'll read the leader portion, and together we're going to pray the all portion, and then we're going to move to the Lord's Supper. So would you join me in praying this, and imagine praying this for one another, praying this for me, praying this for us, praying this for yourself, okay? So let's pray together. We follow the example of the Apostle Paul in praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might.
It is in the name of the resurrected, ascended, and enthroned Lord Jesus, God over all, our authority and leader to the church. We pray these things. Amen, amen, and amen. And now we come to a meal. That's his table. He set it for us. And it's a meal that actually reveals more of who he is, even as we partake in it.